thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. I got to fly against all the NATO F-16s. I got to fly against U.S. Air Force F-15s, F-16s, Hornets, Tomcats, Marines, Navy, the Brits, the French, and the Mirage 2000s. If they were in Europe, we got to fly against them. Hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I'm your host, Vincent Aiello, call sign Jello. And I hope you have enjoyed our pivot to video in 2023. We've had several episodes now, and most of them are recorded right here in our studios in San Diego. But we're trying something different this week. Now, our Patreon supporters for the last couple of years have had access to dozens of interviews that are casual and just fun, and we call them happy hours. Well, for this week, we are going to repurpose one of those with a gentleman named Fred Clifton, who is a former Air Force fighter pilot, flew a lot of different aircraft, including the MiG-29 Fulcrum, and we're going to adapt that for this episode. Now, it was recorded on Zoom, so the audio and video quality is not quite as good, but I think you're really going to enjoy the content and the discussion. So let's get to it. Clifton, Spanky, hello. Hey, how you doing? Good. You got neon lights on and everything back there. So this is my man cave. <laughs> One of the few houses in the entire Las Vegas Valley that actually has a basement. Yeah. Oh, wow. It's probably cooler down there. No way. Well, just to set the stage here. So we're, we're just meeting, but you were featured on Classic Fighter Association. That's what it is. I read about this guy named Spanky who had flown, oh, F-18 or something, F-16. And then, oh, yeah, then he went and did a tour of flying fulcrums. Yeah. How did all this work out? Tell us about you. You know, career single-seat uh, knuckle dragger. Started off in the F-15 and then uh, flew F-5s in one of our aggressor squadrons then converted to the F-16. Took off time from the Viper to first off go to language school, learn how to mumble in German, and then... Uh, Flew the Falcon for two and a half years, and then went back to the Viper for another uh, six after that, and then uh, finally retired in December of 04. I might have been confusing. I think you were talking about fighting the F-18, but I guess maybe you probably didn't fly it. No, I've gotten one ride in the backseat of an F-model. Oh, well, that's relatively recent. The F's only been around for 20 years. And one of the guys I flew with in my last assignment was actually a Navy guy. He was dual-qualified in the F-16, and also he was flying the E-models, ENFs, and VX-9 at China Lake. He's retired now, but he's still flying F-18s for Boeing. Oh, wow. That's not a bad gig. So I remember, what years were you flying the Fulcrum? Uh, 96 to 98, two and a half years. See, I bet I knew of you way back then, because that was like the curtain had just kind of come down, and we were starting to get reports from, I guess, uh, probably the East Germans that we first got to know what they were doing. And then we had folks like you go and do exchange tours. And before we knew it, all kinds of good information was coming out about the fighters. So I'm interested in knowing about your experiences, but I don't really know where to begin. Kind of my first 
the exposure to the Fulcrum was through Intel briefings when I was a young punk F-15 pilot from 83 to 87. Of course, the airplane was first being fielded. And of course, we were getting fuzzy images and, and Intel reports guessing on what it could and couldn't do. And when I went to the aggressors, as you're going through the aggressor training course, every guy was assigned an academic topic that you had to prepare a briefing for. And in those days, the Air Force aggressors, we used to go on roadshows. You were gone about half the year. You'd go out, you'd take a six ship, probably eight pilots and a couple of GCI controllers to different bases and uh, fly DACT against those guys. And then you would take your academic briefing. So here you were walking out to your F-5 with your classified academic briefing and you'd stuff in the nose of the airplane in the gun bay. And uh, my academic subject was the uh, MiG-29 and the Su-27. Later, my first assignment in the F-16 was to Masao Air Base, Japan. And in the summer times, we would deploy because the sea fog, you basically had about a three or four hour fly window. Otherwise, you were, you know, it walks off. So I uh, got a chance to see a MiG-29 when they were doing their goodwill tours to the U.S. back in the uh, early 90s. And I got to get up and sit in it. And then uh, lo and behold, in 95, actually, I was flying F-16s at Pope Air Force Base of all places. Pope had always been a, uh, an airlift base. But for whatever reason, post-Desert Storm, we moved two fighter squadrons in there, an SF-16 squadron and an A-10 squadron. And we had two C-130 squadrons. You know, what do you do with this mix? Don't know. Yeah, we made up some stuff that we uh, thought we could do with that mixture, but <laughs> it looked good on paper. But we never got to uh, actually try it. At those days, Air Combat Command Air Force owns all the U.S.-based fighters. They had a policy because of the you know, reduction in forces after a Desert Storm. You could only have three field graders, majors and above, in a squadron. But the initial cadre of guys at this uh, squadron at Pope were all really experienced guys. And I made major while I was there, and I wasn't one of the top three. You know, the squadron commander, the operations officer, and the assistant operations officer. So I had to start to look for a new job. Writing was on a wall. So uh, I was walking in the squadron one day, and a guy met me walking out and asked me if I'd seen the MiG-29 exchange assignment. Posted on the uh, the Air Force want ads. The Air Force in those days would put available job listings on the internet, and you could go apply for them. So no, I missed that one. My first choice was uh, they were bringing back the SR seventy one. That's uh, right. Not a fighter, but I think it'd be cool to go Mach three plus. But the prerequisite was prior uh, SR seventy one time, which excluded yeah. me. So I went and applied for the MiG twenty nine job, and lo and behold, I was the uh, first guy picked out of the hat, and. Uh, Real quick, going back, did you go get your feet sandy in Desert Storm? You talked a little bit about that. I was uh, stationed in Masao at the time, and uh, Pacific Air Forces, I think we sent one fighter squadron to the war, and that was uh, an F-4G Wild Weasel squadron about three weeks after it started. You know, they never tell stories about the home guard, right, when everyone else is going out and doing all the shooting. But the fact is, there's a lot of people like you that had to still be on watch, if you will, back home and didn't get their boots sandy. So the funny thing was kind of like, you know, Navy on a carrier has the air boss in the air force. Right. We have supervisor flying, put a guy up in a pilot up in the tower, three or four hour shift. And, and you kind of, you run the flying up. And I was up in the tower that morning. So we're about 10 hours ahead. So it was a mid mid morning or so. And uh, we were launching recovering airplanes between snowstorms. I got a phone call. It was my wife. She'd been watching CNN and said that the war started. And I'm kind of dejected because now here's a war and I'm sitting up in a tower watching airplanes take off and land in between snowstorms. A couple of minutes later, the squadron hotline 
lit up. I picked it up, and it was our squadron weapons and tactics officer, the guy that would go on to become a four-star general. He called me up and says, hey, Spanky, the war's on. You know, we're not there, so our careers are over. And I think because he became a four-star general, he was just being nice, telling me my career was over, his not so much. <laughs> and then the uh, <laughs> theater world was run by the Japanese, and they had a fighter wing at the base also. The Japanese hotline lit up. The uh, watch supervisor picked up the phone, and they were speaking Japanese, and he brought over the rest of the crew, and they went you know, secure, which meant channel one for them. And I spoke almost no Japanese, but they were talking for a couple of seconds. Then the tower supervisor came over and congratulated me on a successful first strike. I couldn't get more dejected than that. <laughs> yeah. Congratulations, Spanky. Other people, not you, just got the chance to finally go, right? Because I don't know, I, I talk about on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, I, you know, I don't want war, but if there's going to be war, I'd like to see my medal, right? Test it. You don't want to sit at the home guard. So, all right. But somebody had to do it and you were one of them. Sorry, bud. So getting back to it. So you get picked to go do this thing. And you said something earlier about some language school. I don't know. Let's, let's talk about what that experience was like, because it's, it's foreign to me. And I guess that's probably a bad pun. But it must have been pretty cool. The criteria for, for the job was to be a, an Air Force Weapons School graduate, which I had done in the F-16. Actually, I did it when they still had the upward on the side of the building, fighter. It was just now the weapons school. That's right. Kind of glossed over that earlier, by the way. That's like a big deal to get accepted at six months of your life there, Spanky. So don't be too modest now. Come on. Yeah, it was a, it was a great opportunity. And, and being a, a graduate of the weapons school, it opens up a lot of doors that aren't normally open to, I would I hate to say the masses, because there's some great fighter pilots out there that aren't weapons school graduates. It's got to be something you want to do. Anyway, the first thing, obviously, a weapons school graduate, and you had to pass the defense language aptitude battery test. And I grew up mostly in El Paso, Texas. And in El Paso, we, because of our proximity to the border, we had to take Spanish from first through seventh grade. And I couldn't put a complete sentence together in Spanish. So I went into this room, sat down at this desk, and I had a cassette player on a long lead with a proctor at a desk up in front of the classroom and I put the headsets on and they pushed play and they had this made up language and it sounded like a mixture of Arabic and Tagalog, you know, Filipino language. And they'd give you a rule one and you'd start off with rule one and based on this and you had these multiple choice questions. What was the gist of this sentence or what did they mean here? And then about 10 questions with rule one and then you would introduce rule two and then that was an additive to rule one. Got to about rule 10. It was about 50, 60 questions. And I got, I busted this. I'm not going to go to German climbing 29. So they, uh, I turned the test in and she graded it and I did pass. So uh, long story short, ended up driving from North Carolina with a wife, two kids, two dogs to Monterey, California. And uh, people go, well, you're stationed in Monterey. I go, what a great deal. I go, I didn't get to see it. Academic is the hardest thing I've ever done. Really? Yeah. That's saying a lot considering you went to the weapons school. I, I took it seriously because I didn't want to seem like a, uh, you know, the fifth wheel in the squadron when I got there that you know, I couldn't communicate unless they spoke to me in English. And I knew that some portion of the squadron were going to be former East Germans and they were going to have the, the English language capabilities that the former West German guys did. So I took it seriously. There was a guy. Also, a, an F-16 uh, fighter weapons school graduate, he was going through the Dutch school at the same time. He was always out on the golf course. But there was myself, class of 10, and a Navy SEAL. We were the two guys in the corner with the dunce cans on. 
in the end, I ended up graduating number one in the class, which was uh-huh. the standards. Yeah, I felt pretty confident going into the job when I, you know, the first day I got to the squadron, I, the flight took me into Berlin. They sent uh, two guys down. The squadron was on the north coast in the Baltic Lager Air Base. The biggest town close by was Rostock, which was a major port town pre and post and during and post World War II. And it's where the Heinkel Aircraft Factory was at during World War II. So uh, I showed up in the squadron the first day, feeling pretty confident about my German. So I got a dose of reality, the speed, the slang, everything. It, it took me a couple of months to finally start to catch on a little bit. But by the end, I could stand up in front of the, the squadron or go places and teach academics all in German. Wow. Yeah, that's saying a lot because it's one thing to learn, you know, I'd like some milk and cheese or whatever. It's another to talk particular jargon of fighter pilots. So The last squadron reunion I went to was 2018. I was the keynote speaker. Wow. <laughs> so... I've managed to keep it up a little bit. Good for you. The jet itself, because I've studied it as an aggressor, and the fact that we, you know, the Russians produced the Su-27 and the MiG-29, kind of fourth-gen airplanes, were a couple of the factors that sounded the death knell in the F-5 as an adversary airplane in the Air Force. The F-5 just could not simulate the capabilities of those two airplanes. True, they couldn't, either avionics-wise, weapon system-wise, kinematically, uh, not up to speed. I still think the F-5 is a great adversary airplane. When I finally got to the squadron, got there in the evening and got my first flight the next morning. Wow. <laughs> Backseat of a two-holer, but still, you know, the U.S. Air Force, they make you sit around and wait for a month or something like that. I don't know if it's written somewhere, but it's just kind of become standard practice. And uh, got a ride and then started the checkout fairly quickly after that. Because when I came into the squadron, I had a little over 2,500 hours of fighter time which made me the most experienced fighter pilot on the base. Oh, my goodness. So they decided to give me an abbreviated checkout, which consisted of, I did the transition phase, the entire phase, which was about five rides, which included some simulators, sorties, you know, normal procedures, emergency procedures, instrument flying, standard stuff, and, of course, the same thing in the airplane, and then a solo flight in the uh, single-seater. And then once I was done with that, the uh, BFM phase, I did in one day. I got defensive and a, and a neutral BFM ride all in one day. And then the next time I flew, I got a one versus one intercept ride so that, the, you know, I'd get used to the airplane and flying and, and doing the radarology all at the same time. Which, you know, we've done in the sim, but it's just different. As you know, uh, flying simulators does not replace flying an airplane. And then after that, you're done. Oh, by the way, we got a four versus four against some Danish F-16. <laughs> want to lead <laughs> it's been a year or so since i've actually led a four ship so uh i'm gonna pass i'll, I'll gladly fly anywhere else in the flight i still want to lead so i ended up flying as i think number four and i think last four ship I, I flew anywhere other than as number one wow well <laughs> i mean goodness you just spent all that time at the language institute plus it's a foreign country with a language barrier with the Danes too, probably, and everything else. <laughs> I just want to throw you right in the fire. That's hilarious. Their transition syllabus was built so that you came out the other end as you were a MiG-29 flight lead. The only way into the squadron is you had to be an F-4 flight lead before you come in the squadron. No tornado pilots or anything like that. Just F-4 guys only, except for the prior former East German guys. They all came out of the MiG-21. So these are guys in their upper 20s, lower 30s, probably pretty experienced by then? Yeah. 
So I was the threat aircraft SME at Top Gun. I was there from 2000 to 2002. And at the time, part one of my three-part lecture was MiG-29. I mean, that was yeah. the percentage fourth gen threat. Part two was the SU-27. And as I was leaving there, I think they shifted that around and realized the flanker is probably the bigger threat, figuratively and literally. Yeah. Um, one of the things I remember among many is just little things like the way the attitude reference indicator worked or the way that the radar was mechanized. I don't want to say not intuitive, but for Western trained pilots, it just seemed queer to me. And I use that word sometimes that people don't like, but it, you know, if you stick to its original meaning. But what was it like for you? I mean, was, was the attitude reference like when you were in IMC, did it take some thinking or did it not bother you? First, it was bass backwards because you're not airplane. The horizon on your attitude indicator is always parallel with the horizon. As you know, it's not the case in the MiG-29. Right. It's always parallel to the wings. So that was a little disconcerting at first. But you get used to it. It becomes a non-issue. Same thing with the radar mech. Yeah, it's complicated, but muscle memory is muscle memory. And once yeah. you get used to it, you know there were enough changes in the symbology and the heads-up display that looking at that and, and kind of knowing where you started, you could move a switch left or right a couple of clicks and know exactly what radar mode you were in. Of course, with the helmet-mounted sight, which you know I flew with religiously, unless I was going out on a cross-country or an instrument sortie, because it's a, basically the, the best thing we had going for us. It was simple. It's not like the uh, joint helmet-mounted queuing system. It's like a monocle, right? Monocle with a, a couple of concentric circles. Even that symbology changes based on where you're at and your lock-on status and whether you're within weapons parameters. And also, once you got inside a Typically 10 miles, you would select what's called the co-op mode, which ties all the sensors. And I, I'll include the helmet as a sensor, all that together. So you never had to go back down in the cockpit. You moved your head around and as good a weapon and pilot or sensor and pilot interface as any airplane I've ever flown inside of about 10 miles. It was busy, but after you did it for a while, it became a non-issue as far as I'm concerned. And that says a lot, right? Because that, if I remember correctly, became operational in about 1984. So this is late 70s technology. I mean, and and I remember the helmet-mounted sight and the archer was like the big threat. Now this guy can look off foresight at us and uh, and hit us. So that dictated a lot of our tactics, at least in the Hornet community. If we could survive the merge, of course, our radar-guided missile, the AA-10 Alpha, very good missile inside its kinematic capability. In fact, in the summer of 2003, we had seven or eight German MiG-29s down at Eglin Air Force Base, and we shot missiles off of them. And the A-10 Alpha, inside its kinematic capability, very good, very short range compared to even an AIM-7, for example. But if we could survive the merge, and we had the SA to execute and prosecute the merge, with the helmet matter sight in your archer, you were sharp in the feeding frenzy. <laughs> and that was the genesis going back to the beginning of our conversation of your little article right up in the Classic Fighter Association was you were with by then experienced in the Eagle, the Viper, and now the Fulcrum. And so you were drawing parallels and a weapons school graduate, how it fought compared to how the other aircraft fought. So just give us some parallels there as far as, uh, and did you, I'm sure you got to fight Danish F-16s and probably Dutch F-16s or maybe Americans, but how did the Fulcrum do? It depended on the scenario. Let me back up just a little bit. Sure, absolutely. From beyond visual range, totally outclassed by all our fourth-gen fighters. Because of radar and missiles? or The MiG-29's radar was actually fairly good. You know, Our radars not only help in in the launch of weapons, but they're there to increase the pilot's situational awareness. 
what's going on around you. The MiG-29 displays, they were there for weapons aiming only. Situational awareness, that belonged to the GCI controller on the ground. The pilot was a stick and throttle actuator. Everything you read, ever read about that is true. But again, totally outclassed. But the tables turned a little bit when you survived and made it to emerge because of the A-11 and the, uh, the helmet mounted sight. Now, I got to fly against all the NATO F-16s. I got to fly against U.S. Air Force F-15s, F-16s, Hornets, Tomcats, Marines, Navy, the Brits, the French, and the Mirage 2000s. If they were in Europe, we got to fly against them. And, you know, Miramar, they used to have the sign outside that said Fighter Town USA. Uh-huh. There was uh, some talk about on our transit ramp there in Laga Air Base, putting, you know, Fighter Town Laga. <laughs> because, you know, everyone wanted that. And again, you, you kind of alluded to that in the late 90s, the MiG-29, it was the threat of the day. Su-27 was coming in the limitation of the Su-27 was just numbers. They had not produced enough that we really considered that the primary threat. In the early 2000s, that became threat. We kind of poo-pooed the MiG-29. It emerged or just going out and doing BFM against any of those. A lot of guys described it as a hornet on steroids. Great alpha, but uh, kind of, you know, big mouth block 30 F-16 thrust away. I could go over the top at 150 knots. Where in an F-16, I would need about 250. And the big difference is I think the F-16 has a little bit better thrust away, a little bit. Both aircraft are limited to the same alpha, but the MiG-29 alpha limiter, you can pull through it. It's a soft stop. So you could get up to whatever the airplane would give you, 30, 35, 40 degrees of alpha. And just use that power to motor around, you know, over the loop and uh, really surprise people. Yeah. Oh, I bet. I'll use the F-16 as my baseline because that's most of my fighter experience. The F-16 is known for sustained turn rate capability. The MiG-29 cannot match that. And a little bit better instantaneous turn rate on the charts. The problem with that instantaneous turn rate in an airplane like a MiG-29 has no overdue protection. You know, I could pull the black out of the stick and bend the airplane. If you want to get her to pull nine Gs when you maybe have 12 available <laughs> that uh, you might have, you got to be real careful. Yeah. But of the four airplanes I flew, it was the hardest to fly. Well, the flight control system was sloppy, imprecise. It has a stability augmentation system. It was always trying to fight you for control of the airplane. So you, once you learn the nuances, those became second nature. But as you're learning the airplane, it, it just made for surprises. And the other thing is the single-seater was a very forgiving airplane. You could do stupid pilot tricks all the live long day. The plane was not going to bite you. The two-seater, you needed to be careful. Really? The part, relatively low alpha, high speed, it would go in the direction it wanted to go. Was that because of the canopy or a shift in center of gravity? Because the- I think it's the shape of the airplane in front of the, the wing. Line. Okay. Because you know, the front-seater and the two-seater sitting about where all the uh, electronics for the radar would be. Very pointed, different shape. So I think aerodynamically that impacted uh, some of the handling characteristics. And yet, if I remember correctly, and I used to mention this in my lecture, in fact, I'm sitting here going through all this stuff in my head and I say, I wonder how much of this is still classified because I got to be careful. But I think the only air-to-air kill of a fulcrum is a fulcrum B. And that was a Cuban one that shot down like some Freedom Fighter Cessna over the strait or whatever you call the water between Cuba and Florida. Do you remember that? Like. 25, 30 years ago? 90s. The yeah. Cuban 29 shot down two uh, Cessna 337. Some Cuban expatriates had 
flown to uh, Cuba to try to pick up their families or something, and they got shot down. I think a MiG twenty from a Fulcrum B. Yeah, I think a MiG twenty nine over Georgia, not like Atlanta, Georgia, but Georgia and Europe, <laughs> shot down a drone. Yeah, well, that doesn't count in my book. <laughs> no, but I would say it kills a kill. Yeah, true, true. I guess they, they counted them against balloons and uh, V-1 rockets and earlier wars. But If you've always dreamt of a career in aviation while keeping your feet on the ground, then Air Corps Aviation is the place for you. Since 2008, Air Corps Aviation has been at the forefront of modernizing the airworthiness of legacy aircraft dating back to World War II. Their dedicated team specializes in numerous aerospace disciplines, including manufacturing, fabrication, restoration, and support, all while incorporating state-of-the-art technology. In 2024, Air Corps Aviation is expanding its team with job openings in engineering and computer-aided design, quality, fabrication, and restoration. Live where others vacation in northern Minnesota while enjoying paid time off, health insurance and savings accounts, retirement plans, life insurance, and best of all, most Fridays off. If you're ready to be a part of a team fulfilling dreams through the preservation of historical aircraft, visit aircoreaviation.com careers and take your first step towards an exciting career in aviation. That's aircoreaviation.com careers. Visit today. I'm thinking of like a 1960s race car where there was no electronics, no traction control, no throttle control, right? You put a driver in that race car, and I'm no race car driver, but I'm just guessing at this, and skill matters. It sounds to me like some of the modern fighters are a little bit more forgiving with the flight control logic and different things and can maybe level the playing field a little bit, whereas it sounds like in the fulcrum, some skill was definitely required because it was like that older race car. It was more just rubber to the road kind of thing. That's a great analogy. Maybe you like mid-19, late 1960s Cobra. I was thinking that. It's just pure muscle. Too much power, not enough weight. Exactly. Yeah. What about the rest of the aircraft, though? Like I've heard, I, and I've, I've seen one or two up close, but I don't remember. Workmanship, like an F-16 is beautiful, let's face yeah. it. And it's it's well built. I was always told the Russian aircraft were more just kind of, you know, like <laughs> grunt and uh, they're built like together with a hammer. <laughs> you know, surprisingly, the MiG-29 has some fairly high tech materials in it. But what I've said and written at times is like uh, Ivan Ivanovich was given a ball peen hammer and he would take a piece of sheet metal and bend it around some ribs and formers and stuff like that. And Dimitri with his rivet gun would come in and rivet. <laughs> and it looked like that, but it reminds me of a story. And if you remember uh, an operation in Europe over Bosnia, the night flight, there was a Marine F-18 squadron deployed to Aviano Air Base in Italy. They got a break and decided to come up and fly against us for a week. At the end of the week, we typically had a party, exchange gifts, and drank beer. We invited the wives out, and there was a hornet and a falcon parked right next to each other. And uh, one of the former East German wives pulled me to the side. She goes, how can that F-18 be so smooth? And look how rumply that MiG-29 looks. And it's like I beat it with a ball-peen hammer. <laughs> and I had taken an airplane to... Uh, Spangdahlem Air Base, which is in the southwest corner of Germany, two F-16 squadrons, an F-15 squadron, and an A-10 squadron at the time. And I had to go there for some, I can't remember the reason. Because of the uniqueness of the airplane, the transient aircraft crews weren't trained necessarily to, to uh, work on those. What we had to do as a MiG-29 pilot before we take one off station is we went through a day-long course with our maintenance guys on how to service the jet. Fuel, hydraulics, oil, 
and actually had pneumatic brakes, like a Mack truck. So anyway, I was out there and they had contract transient guys and one of them was a German. He had to, you know, these basically told me the handwork of this airplane looks like crap. I go, yeah, it, it does, but it does what it does. And you know, it's a fairly solid airplane. And if you took care of it, you know, it was fairly reliable. And if you let maintenance go, then it's like all other jets. If it's going to sit, it's going to end up sitting. <laughs> Speaking of flying it, let's. I, so I derailed your uh, discussion there. But if you were in your fulcrum and you met another guy like you with some experience in a patch, I don't know, you could just work through the different aircraft. But uh, how did it do? I mean, I, and also, I guess, depends on what do you consider winning, right? I mean, the first shot or, or getting at the guy six o'clock. But just tell some in, stories in, when you fought Eagles and Vipers and Hornets and all that. And Tomcats. Against an eagle, you had a thrust rate advantage. You had a sustained turn rate advantage. I'm going to fly just like I'm going to fly an F-16. You try to keep the turn rate up, knowing that if I need to, and I beat him down on energy, I'm fairly soon going to have a uh, exclusive use of the vertical, and I can do whatever I want to, you know, do loops around him. But an F-15 flown by a very good F-15 pilot, you need to bring your A game. It's a good BFM machine. Yeah, The F-16... That was a hard fight. The C models with the GE engines had a slight thrust weight advantage, but also a significant sustained turn rate advantage. So you wanted to get the F-16 slow if you could. And of course, anytime you say, I need to get or I need to drive the fight in this direction, it's like kind of like pushing the rope. You can't make the decisions for that pilot, but you had to be careful. You didn't want to get too slow. And the MiG-29, in the best case, only has about 160 degrees second per roll rate. So it's kind of full. If you get slow, then being able to reposition your lift vector, your roll rate gets down to about 20 degrees per second. I mean, a Cessna 152 can do that. <laughs> you got to think ahead. If you could take advantage of your alpha, the alpha advantage that you have over an F-16, I would do that. And I would fly against an F-16 differently. Hey, the only kills that count today are guns. Everything's on the table. Regardless of how I merged with the F-16, I would turn the shortest direction, pull the black out of the stick, and kill him. <laughs> Wake up, see where he is, and shoot him. <laughs> yeah. The Hornet was oh, tough. It was all Hornets are. You always need to mind your P's and Q's around the Hornet because they're great alpha capability. So a lot of times those fights ended up as just pushes. A lot of times we just depend on the pilot. The Tomcats, you know, Tomcats are Tomcat. Then I got to fight against the Tomcats with the big GE motors. But in the end, you know, it's just a big, heavy airplane. Of course, it's always easy to gauge the energy state when the wings go back and forth. That's right. And you never have to worry about losing sight of him. And, of course, the Mirage 2000s, I was a little bit disappointed. I heard a lot of good things about flying against those. Did I fly against the worst pilots in the French Air Force? Or, or were they trying to ascertain more what we could do versus showing uh, us? So I just walked away a little bit disappointed to shake my head. I, you know, did I get their best fight? I don't know. Yeah. Dissatisfied. Um, Too bad. Of course, the Brit F3 Tornadoes, they had us outgunned from beyond visual range. But I got to fight one of those in the grad 1v1 at Top Gun. And yeah. I honestly thought the guy just didn't know the fight was on because he wasn't doing a whole lot. Yeah, I got to do the grad hop once. I went to Fallon. It's when I was stationed at Cannon Air Force Base. Went up there in a clean block 40 F-16. Oh, wow. I mer ended up merging with a, with a Tomcat A model. Yeah. It didn't work out well for him. No, I bet not. Uh, they had some limitations with their uh, with their engines. But at any rate, what what year was that? 
It was about 99-ish. Oh, just missed each other. I got there in March of 2000. Okay. Uh, yeah, that's good. Uh, so you never obviously brought the fulcrums all the way over? We had modified the first airplane to be able to do that while I was there. That comprised of is they had to add a GPS-based navigation system on top of the inertial uh, navigation uh, system. Yeah. And they had to plumb the airplane to carry wing tanks because uh, not all MiG-29s were plumbed to carry external wing tanks. Huh. Just give it range. And, and that's one of the limitations of the MiG-29 is how short-legged it is. So uh, we got the first airplane done. And, of course, we had no performance data on it, how far we could fly. So each one of the instructor pilots in the, in the squadron, and me being one of them, got a couple of profiles to fly. And basically consists of round robins around Germany at different altitudes, different Mach numbers, just to see how long we could fly and how far we could fly. And my longest sortie in the MiG-29 was a 2.4. And I was happy to get out of an airplane. <laughs> that seat was uncomfortable. <laughs> 2.4 is not that long either. That's uh, relatively speaking. But, but my shortest yeah. sortie was full out of internal fuel. We, we didn't have any centerline tanks, but took off. Our airspace was right above the field. Started at 7,000 feet MSL and went up to 50,000. And it, from where we were at, kind of in the middle about 45 miles north, 45 miles south, and about the same thing east and west. So we took off, full burner, Immelman departure into the uh, airspace, and climbed up to That's about 18,000 feet and had enough separation between the airplanes. We started our first BFM setup from there. <laughs> On the first one, I was defensive, and we swapped roles after that, and then knocked it off, and we were basically still right overhead the field, joined back up, did a split S to initial pitched out, and landed. 16 minutes. Oh, my goodness. So uh, on the Fighter Pilot podcast, we had an uh, Indian guest come on and talk about the MiG-29. And he didn't take the bait when I said, oh, I think of the Fulcrum as a point defense fighter. He, I, if I remember the interview correctly, he said, no, we, we go out and do offensive stuff a lot. But you sound like you're saying what I was always saying was it had really short legs and was more of a you're, you're probably not going to go out and stir up the hornet's nest with, uh, with this fighter. One of my first tasks from the, from the Germans was to come up with a tactics manual for the MiG-29. Really? <laughs> they sat me down in an office with a, one of the German pilots, and I spoke and he wrote. One of the scariest things I've ever done in flying fighters is, all right, everything I'm saying is probably not gospel, but you're writing it down as if it is. <laughs> so we came up with this. After about three weeks, we had a published tactics manual how to set up our avionics, how to set up our self-defense systems, how to run the radar, how we were going to target and sort in different groups and our intercept flows and yada, yada, yada. And the thing was, we came up with a tactical range with a centerline tank and a full load of missiles, which consisted of two AA-10 Alphas and uh, four AA-11 Archers, 150 mm -hmm. miles. That was it. That gave us a high subsonic cruise out to whatever we we're going to cap. As soon as the centerline was empty, it got jettisoned. Two minutes on station in full burner and then RTB. Now, obviously, if you weren't using burner, you could stay on station a little bit longer, but sure. We go worst case, two minutes in burner, head home. Wow. By comparison, the flanker, I'll never forget. I don't know why I remember this, but I was in um, FA 18 FRS, RTU, you might, you might call it. And the instructor was one of the guys who was an extra in Independence Day. Remember that? Because they used Marine Squadrons. And I was at yeah. the Marine Squadron, even though I was a Navy guy. And he was talking about, he was in some exercise. I don't know why he was up in uh, like Scandinavia, 
but he said that some Russian flanker like came all the way down Finland or, or you know Norway or something and like swirled around with them a little bit and then went all the way up and went all the way home. So, boy, they, they sure did for the two aircraft that were sort of siblings, right? Because it came out just only a couple of years later. But like you said, there wasn't as many of them. Yeah. But I want to say, what, your, your fulcrum carried like 7,500 pounds, almost like an F-16 two-seater. Uh, and the flanker was something like 20,000 internal pounds, if I remember correctly. Yeah. The MiG-29 was 7,600 pounds internal. The C-model added about 400 pounds to that, which... Because of the hump? About 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah, probably a little bit more than that, but not much. That was my biggest disappointment in the airplane. They gave up a whole lot of internal volume in the leading edge extensions for the over-the-top intakes for rough field operations. And that all happened automatically. You had no, you started the engine and, and at about 35% RPM, a little indicator in the cockpit would show that the, the intake door would close. The intake louvers over the top, they just spring loaded. They all operate independently of each other. And just the forces and the suction of the engine around and all the uh, air going around the intake, they just open. And even at slow speed, if you're flying, those things are flapping around because air is spilling over the top of the leading edge extensions. That used to be something we used to brief. I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about this, um, but you just said anyway. So they would like open and close like gills of a fish, right? And that, that was like as a guy fighting it, like a cue of its energy state is what I think what we talked about. Yeah. But, and then those those ramps uh, just automatic, right? So huh. yeah, you could emergency open them. All your engine control switches were on the left hand side by the throttle. For some reason, one didn't close. You could emergency open it, but it, you were limited to 0.8 Mach because if they were operating normally, just like the complex uh, intakes of an F-15, I think maybe the F-14 also, those would vary the geometry of the intakes to control the uh, shock wave that's formed in the throat. Ah, the gotcha. How fast did you ever get one up to? 1.7. 1.7. It was a bad weather day, and we needed to fly. Of course, I had an airplane that didn't have a centerline tank on it. Otherwise, I was limited to 1.5. Took off, got above the weather about 35,000 or so, and then uh, basically did a mock run starting over the Baltic towards and running south towards Berlin. And 1.7, yeah, it was time to pull it back. And <laughs> Did you ever get an Eagle or a Viper over two? I had an Eagle a few times over two, fastest ever 2.35, wow. same plane, two flights, same day. Wow. So I got I had a chance to fly the F-16. Uh, Navy's got a handful of them still up in Fallon. And I had an A model to 1.93. That was the best I ever did. And then I looked at my fuel and I was at the far end of the range and said, whoops, I knocked off with like 1.6 or 7 and still landed with 1.1 1 .1 or 2 because it was slick. And the thing is just so clean when you come out of burner and come back but but yeah you were talking earlier about aoa man after years and years and hours and hours in the hornet where you could just do an aoa excursion i'd get over the top in the viper and think oh i've been here before i know what to do now i'd want to break that darn stick off and it would not give me one more half a degree <laughs> it would just like nope this is all you get like dang it <laughs> yeah you don't at some point you don't have a vote anymore no yeah but I, I enjoyed the Viper, but yeah, I can't imagine the Fulker must have been a lot of fun. How many hours did you end up with in it? 500 hours. 500, but that was 0.34 at a time, right? I actually have more sorties. I have more sorties than I have hours in the F5 and the MiG-29. All the takeoffs and landings equal each other, though, I hope? Yeah, all takeoffs and landings all equal out. Good. I thought about jumping out once in an F-16. Oh, really? Yeah. Was the... Fulcrum ejection seat, though, I mean, was it well-respected or was it kind of feared a little bit? 
I've seen a lot of YouTube videos of the ejection seat, the Russian MiG-29 and C-27 ejection seat uh, demonstration team, because they've dumped a few at air shows. It's a good seat. Yeah. It's just comfortable. Again, 2.3 or 2.4, whatever it was, I logged. Really happy to get out. I bet. How about HOTAS, hands-on throttle and stick? You said earlier you had to click over uh, to co-op and a few other things. You had uh, basically four hands-on functions. Radar lock-on, chaff flares over on the throttle. You could run the, the acquisition cursor for the radar and the infrared search and track system on the stick, and your brake lock button was on the stick, too. That was it. Of course, you had a trim button on the stick. Which right. is, yeah. trigger. The MiG-29's predecessor, the MiG-23, the trim button was down on the console. <laughs> what? That's yeah. crazy. I was offered a couple of chances. Civilian guys that own MiG-23 say, you want to get checked out? And from what I know of the airplane, my answer was a definite no. Yeah. Did you know uh, Brian McCoy? We had him on the show. He had, he had had a chance to go do the Red Eagle stuff. Uh, I don't know him personally. We've had a bunch of your... Uh, Folks on the show, uh, Mike Triel Day, T-Day. I don't know if you know him. He's an F-16 guy. Like 4,000 plus hours in the F-16. Wow. It's crazy. We've had him on the show. And then uh, Caesar came on, talked about his three kills. But wow. So when you left that, you went back to flying other fighters after that, right? I went back to the F-16. Uh, my primary choice was to go back to the F-15. Really? I already had my 1,000-hour patch in the F-16. Didn't quite make it in the F-15. I had 900 hours in the F-15. Ah. Be kind of unique to have two thousand hour patches. True, and uh, I'd also gotten a little lazy. You know, you go over and fly in an air to air squadron. Mission planning consists of filling out your lineup card. Where you know, I've seen air ground squadron mission planning is kind of oh yeah, kind of a time consuming exercise. Yeah, did you ever do any air to surface in the fulcrum? Uh, we did not. We tried to talk them into letting us go strafe. There was a, a tactical range about halfway between us and Berlin I had a bunch of targets and, you know, the, the A-10s out of Spangdahlen would go use it and mm-hmm. the air to ground guys would go use it. We wanted to go straight. Necessarily want to drop bombs, but let's go straight. The problem is the gun barrel's life is fairly short. So the staff in uh, Bond said, that sounds too much like fun. Oh, by the way, the gun barrel's short-lived and uh, expensive. Yeah. So uh, we didn't get to do that. Uh, so Pictures from the former East German guys' head snips of them actually dropping bombs off the airplane, describing how it worked. It was almost like going and dialing in mills you know, and doing manual bombs. Uh, was the aircraft you flew, was it aerial refuelable? Or I thought maybe that was the Fulcrum D or something. But No, there was a kit that the Germans could have added on. I think the Russians figured out capitalism fairly quickly of the weapon systems the Germans had, by far the most expensive to operate. You know, engines, keeping the radars up and everything else the airplane required that we don't need to put air refueling probes on them. I think the mod was about a 90-pound mod total. It wouldn't have cost much performance-wise or anything, but it was just the money, and the Germans spent a lot of money on defense. And, and they knew the uh, MiG-29 was going to go away. Yeah. By 98, they'd already made that decision and kind of had it planned out. Their roadmap of getting the MiG-29 out of the inventory and, the, and, of course, the Eurofighter up and operating. Sure. Where, where did they go? Uh, do you know? The bulk of the fleet, all but one airplane, went to Poland. They sold them for a euro apiece. Some sort of law or paperwork reason and then sold them well, something else more expensive? I felt guilty about September of 1939, whenever ah. they invaded Poland. 
Yeah, so, I shouldn't be laughing, but the, the feeling that, guilty part is kind of funny, I guess. All the, right. I offered them five. <laughs> <laughs> they kept one airplane, and it's in a museum near Berlin. Sure, of course. But yeah, there's some companies I think looked into fulcrums and flankers over here. And because of the reasons we talked about before, each one was a little different in the way they were built. I don't think they were very cost effective. I test flew the first civilian on MiG-29 to fly. Really? Yeah. In December of 2010. And that airplane's been parked since. Really? Oh, wow. Hey, um, I remember briefing forward firing chaff like out of the gun. We didn't do that. You guys didn't have that? Okay. You never did it, but it was a capability. Yeah, I don't know that we had the rounds or not. And I got to shoot the gun at a towed target. Oh, cool. Forward firing flares was never part of our discussion. Just the the two chaff and flare dispensers to base of the vertical fins. That was the only thing that we were ever going to load up in, in my mind. And I also got to shoot missiles off the airplane, too. Did you? Nice. You know, an entire U.S. Air Force career, the guy's lucky to maybe shoot, unless you're in test, maybe shoot one air-to-air -air missile off an airplane. Right. The Germans, we had to shoot something off the airplane, whether it's a gun or a missile, once a year to maintain our mission-ready status. So we had two shoot periods per year so that guys could go on vacation. They had to plan their lives around a shoot period, go out over the Baltic and shoot IR guided missiles and, and shoot the gun at towed targets. Was that uh, was it fairly accurate gun? I thought it was. The gun sight is a little difficult to interpret, but once you kind of get the gist of it, it's fairly easy to use after that, except unless you, you're trying to shoot a jinkin target. You got to align too many pieces of symbologies to do. That. <laughs> so somebody's jinkin, you might as well reposition and wait till they run out of energy. And yeah. Try again. <laughs> Beat them down a little bit first. How about uh, you talked about the Alamo? Was there ever anything on the jet for either Adder or the Longburn Alamo? Not our jets. The Longburn. The weapons computer is set up so it will accept the long burn. If you put it on the airplanes, it'll recognize it for what it is. And I'm not sure how you guys did it in the uh, Hornet, probably the same as, as did in the Eagle, but you had a simulator plug that went into the station where you'd hang name seven to tell the, the weapons computer that, hey, there's a missile out here, do aim seven stuff. <laughs> so uh, what they would put in a rail was a little computer card that would simulate an AA-10, and they had two different types of cards, one for an AA-10 Alpha, one for an AA-10 Extended Range, the ER. And uh, the airplane didn't care. You put cards in both the inboard missile rails, tell the jet that we were simulating that this missile's out here and the weapons computer, and as soon as you lock somebody up, you would get the display for that weapon. The displayed uh, engagement envelope would be much bigger with the ER than it was with the Alpha. Yeah, of course. That was always the big mystery for us is, well, what if this guy shows up with long burns? And so we talked to Nayak at the time, Nazik, I guess now, a lot about yeah. eh, what are we seeing out there? So certainly the jet would accept it. I think the, the fear was that because the missile itself is so much longer going aft and also a little bit forward, you know, with the boost of same motor on the, the chuck, you know, you launch it off and it might burn you know, force off stabilizer off. So I, I think it would have done that. But uh, I have flown the airplane with the uh, D model body and obviously the IR seeker head on it. And uh, got to check that out a little bit, but that was not necessarily a go to war. Type yeah, that makes sense. All right, Spank, you, you've been a good sport. I, I don't want to uh, take too long. Plus, I've got a lunch date with my recent high school graduate here at the top of the hour. But let me ask you this if uh, 
fulcrum showed up at your local airport, you could get right back in and go, you think? I think so. In fact, I've been waiting on a phone call from President Zelensky. Yeah. <laughs> it hadn't come yet. No? You'd, no. you'd go? It's, it's a worthy cause. I'd go. I don't know how many Gs I could pull anymore. Yeah, I was out flying an L-39 last uh, in January, checking a new owner out and you know, pulling five Gs. Of course, it's not sustainable like you're doing yeah, Exactly. Yeah, it's a, it's a young person's sport, this dogfighting, I say. <laughs> yeah, it sure is. Uh, awesome. Really appreciate it. And it, like I said, when I read that classic fighter write-up about, oh, yeah, I flew the F-16, and then I went through the fulcrum and the eagle, and here's how it fights against all this. I thought, here's a guy that needs to come on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. So, yeah, you did that. Thank you. All right, thanks. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast the internet show that explores the fascinating world of air combat. Visit our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com, for a blog, a glossary of the terms used on this show, and a shop page featuring unique military aviation-themed books and apparel. Check out our YouTube channel to watch hundreds of military aviation-themed videos. And for exclusive content, head on over to our Patreon page. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow-ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.